guys, good afternoon, morning, night, evening, wherever you're listening to podcasts, and welcome back to Teachable Psych. I I apologize deeply in advance for what happened. Um, I the recording of our first few minutes with Dr. Henderson got it just didn't save, so I'm really sorry about that. But I hope you guys enjoyed today's podcast so far, and that you have a wonderful day. Would you like by introducing yourself? your experience with psychology and education? Well, you know, I, I typically think about it in, um, you mean in terms of your question is basically how to like leverage psychology to like, um, I guess, well, let me answer your question this way. <laughs> I don't know if this is what you meant, but you know, as a instructor, <laughs> so my job at, at UT uh, I, I would say I spend 60% or no, 20%, sorry, on um, teaching, and then the rest is on what we call service. These are like uh, serving on committees, and um, even something like this, what we're doing right now, this would be like an act of service. <laughs> it doesn't really fall in either bucket of teaching or research, so it's kind of like an et cetera um, category. And when I think about psychology and education, I try to think about that specifically that role that I have with as an instructor. What's the best way to motivate students to? Well, I mean, actually, I shouldn't even have said motivate. Sorry, ah, that made a mistake. What is the best uh, way um, to help students learn the information that they want to learn? And some of that has to do with motivation, but there are other factors as well. And so when I think about psychology. What I try to do is um, take, and, I, and I'm certainly no expert, I don't know everything on the ways that, like, you know, best practices to enhance learning, but I'm familiar with some. And so what I try to do is take my, my understanding of psychological research that's been specifically applied to learning and try to either utilize that in my teaching but also, you know, a lot of times with the, you can just be explicit and tell students about these things. And so some of it is the pedagogy of like they, their interactions with me as an instructor, but some of it is just letting them know about certain like strategies, things that they should be doing that they're not doing, or a lot of times things that they should stop doing that they may be doing based on what we know about research. Well, my next question was going to be on what's your take on how psychology is related to education. But I guess you kind of already answered that. But if there's anything else you have to add to that. Yeah, I guess I when I think about psychology, I and I only really thought about it since I got your email. I was trying to put some kind of structure on how I would answer your question. I would say... And these are not certain, you know, I'm going to give you three categories here, but I don't know if they're necessarily mutually exclusive. Like if you, 
I, I could make an argument about how one you know there's some research that overlaps in these categories. So, but generally speaking, when I think about the research that's out there that deals with psychology and trying to understand how to get students to learn uh, or to maximize their learning, I, I think about it in kind of three buckets or three categories. One would be like cognitive um, psychology or psychology that's research that's rooted in cognitive psychology. And, and I'll give you some examples in a moment. The other would be research that's rooted in what I would call more like motivational psychology or motivational science, motivation science. Um, and then the third would be research that deals more with, I would argue, I, I would say it's like biological or physiological research. Maybe biological is a better word. And I'll give you an example of those two, but um, probably most of the research or you know, most of the stuff that's kind of out there in like kind of the lay, lay people or kind of come across in the internet or books and stuff has to do with uh, cog lessons learned from cognitive psychology. So for example, um, and I'm actually going to send you, are you on your email right now? Yes. Yeah. I had already prepared this for you, so I'm going to send this to you. Okay. <laughs> um, hold on. These are just different ways of. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about the second one, but I'm sending you. Uh, so I just sent you. Tell me if you got that. Oops. Under cognitive, I sent you a link to a Vox article that summarizes, I think, really nicely kind of some uh, strategies or lessons that you should kind of, we should share to, for, share to students. And this is based a lot on in, in psychological research. So for example, I'm not gonna go over all of these, but like one that I think is um, a lot of, it's not intuitive for students because a lot of times our textbooks and even the way we lecture, including me, we don't make this obvious, but one of the, the things that they, you know, we learn from research is that one really effective way to maximize learning is when you have students learning a bunch of different topics, rather than keeping them um, always separated by theme, it can be effective to like interweave subject matters that cut across different themes. So initially you don't want to do that because that's overwhelming to students. So you need some kind of structure. This is why when you look at textbooks, the table of contents, they'll usually say, okay, we're going to talk about this, we're going to talk about this and this. And a lot of times teachers do that too. And that can be useful for setting up some structure, right? Like it's like when you, if you ever, do, I don't know if you ever do any cooking, um, but like if you look at recipes, they, they might sometimes tell you, okay, this is going to be the, 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 the starter dish. Here's our like main thing. And here's our like, you know, afterwards or dessert or whatever. And that's how they might lay, lay out the ingredients. But then once you get into the actual instructions, you realize that, well, you might start one thing and while that's cooking, you start the second thing. Oh, then you got to go back to that third, that first thing. Oh, now it's time to prep the third thing to get that ready. So it all comes out. And I think learning, if we, if we look at like learning, it, it seems that that's actually the best way you should approach learning. So you do need some structure where you have like, you know, okay, well, we're going to talk about, like in my case, I talk about aggression. That's one of the topics I talk about in my class. 
Mm-hmm. And then we might also talk about um, close relationships. And then we might also talk about like um, another topic I'll, I'll discuss is um, how people form feelings about th- themselves, like self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and so I'll lay those out and say these are separate things. But then once we get into the actual class, after I've introduced a, t- a topic, it's not like I never return to that topic. I bring it back up, even when we're discussing a new topic. And that's really effective for learning. Like, and, and it's useful to do that for students, too. Students should do that when they're um, not only as they're taking information in. So that's on the teacher side. So when we present topics, we shouldn't just like leave it separated. Like, OK, I talked about aggression. I'm never bringing that up again. We should bring it back up when it's when it's relevant to another topic. But students also, so when they're like organizing their notes and their um, and whatever how, whatever information they have to study, you shouldn't keep it separated. You should actually interweave it in. And actually, it's it, it may feel like it's it's harder to do that because thematically they are different. But it turns out that that actually can be a really effective way to maximize uh, learning. Also related to that point is that um, feeling of um, difficulty. Um, you know, a lot of times students don't want to do things that, not all, but like, you know, you get some students who don't want to do things that like feel hard, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you want to press the easy button <laughs> a lot of times. And, but it turns out that that, um, that feeling of difficulty it could be a sign that you're literally growing, right? You're learning new things. Mm-hmm. And so you're challenging yourself. And so if you can find one of my colleagues, um, or two of my colleagues actually studied this at UT in the educational psychology department, this, this idea of how people think about difficulty, the feeling of difficulty, if you can find a way to reconstruct that so it doesn't seem like this kind of scary, bad thing, but it's actually like a sign of like growth like when you're, if you ever do any exercising, <clears throat> when you challenge yourself, that's when you get the like most gains, right? It's like when you're like, oh my God, this is so hard. <laughs> like, um, I can't believe I did that spin class. Like, this is crazy. Like, and if you just like quit every time it gets hard, <clears throat> you never accomplish any exercise, right? Yep. Or any effect, any effective exercise. And so if you can kind of teach yourself the same thing about learning where you're like, man, this is really challenging, but that's, you know, that's okay. I'm actually like, you know, I'm, I'm learning stuff here. That can be a way to like motivate students to keep pushing forward. Even when things get hard, even when they're getting feedback, like, Oh, I'm not, I'm failing on this test. I'm not failing, but I'm not answering these questions all, you know, correctly. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's actually what I do. And like, I'll change my mindset if I think, oh, this is going to be really hard for me. And then, like, last semester, the school, like, all material, it wasn't as hard as I thought because I just changed my mindset. And it really helped me a lot, so. Yeah. Yeah, some of that, too, has to do with, like, yeah, yeah, just simply, <clears throat> yeah, what, what people expect, right? So, like, sometimes people, sometimes students will come in, um... And you have some, you know, not like sometimes you will learn something and it is easy and that's fine. Mm -hmm. But sometimes things are going to be a challenge. And some students may look at that as a sign like, oh, 
I'm never going to be able to like learn this, mm -hmm. right? And just kind of give up. And like, whereas other students look at that and go, well, okay, I'm not learning it now. I don't know it now, but I will in the future. Like there's a possibility that I will eventually get this. And so, and that is, that, that can be communicated by messages again from like an instructor, but that is also like a mindset. Uh, you reminded me of that when you just said changing your mindset. So, you know, that's a mindset that you can have where, how do you, how do you interpret, um, kind of failure and obstacles, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're oftentimes students are going to encounter that, especially if it's something worthwhile. Um, but sometimes people look at that and like, oh my gosh, like I, I don't get it and I'm never going to get it. And so I'm just going to bail. I'm going to look for something that I kind of get right away. And that is sad if everybody kind of approached it that way, because then people would just be giving up and never really like, uh, no, I'm not saying everybody eventually gets it. You know, I don't want to give this like <clears throat> naive or, um, faucets that like oh if you just try try hard enough eventually you'll get it that is not necessarily true there are times where like you know not everybody is going to be a neurosurgeon right or uh, or cure cancer right there are certain concepts that are like beyond our capacity but a lot are not though like a lot of times it is just a matter of like kind of maximizing the learning um the third thing I would say, the third category, which I don't really talk at all about in my class, but I wanted to mention it to you, the biological one. I sent you a few articles in that email there because I, you know, I, I think this is something we don't really appreciate. Uh, and this is just one example of stuff related to biology, but like what, what, what we consume in terms of like food, right? Like, so that there's actually been quite a amount of research that has looked at and continues to look at, um, food, you know, certain nutrients. So either how much food people are taking in or what kind of food, how that ultimately affects learning. Um, that, you know, I wouldn't put that necessarily, I mean, it certainly is relevant to cognitive psychology because whenever you talk about learning, you're kind of under the umbrella of cognitive psychology, but um, it's not so much a strategy there, right? Like that's actually like you're consuming some external substance that does affect your, um, how your brain processes information and, and ultimately retains information. So I think it's important to mention those things, <clears throat> be aware of those things when you're talking about psychology and education. Um, if you're a student, you know, we don't always have control over what we can eat. Um, and I'm aware of that, but I think it's good to be aware of these things when we're talking about choices. You know, we, we think about food choice a lot when we're talking about our health, which you should, but it's important to also think about how do these food choices affect my learning too, like potentially. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Okay. Our next question is, what do you think is the number one problem for teachers with students when they're trying to get their attention and retain it for an extended amount of time? Ooh, man. Um, well, I think it's, I'm going to give you two answers because I think it really does depend on, um, at least in my case, I thought this could be the tr this could be true for students at any level. Now that I think about it, um, 
does the student want to be there in the class, right? Is this something that's like inherently, hold on, I'm going to get some water, um, kind of already interesting to them or not? Like there are some subject matters that are just going to be more interesting to some students than others. Um, it doesn't mean that students should just bail on the things that they're not interested in. I would say, um, I'll start with that kind of situation where the student is already interested in the subject, but I think can be really challenging for students is that, um, <clears throat> how they manage the information. And that goes back to those cognitive strategies I was telling you about. Um, you've got a lot of information coming at you and it's just, I think one of the biggest things is that how students, helping students not be overwhelmed by it. Um, but that also includes distractions too, right? And, and what I, this might sound weird, but distractions from other classes. Um, and, and it's so, and maybe that's not even the best word for it, but it's that, you know, when you're a student, you don't just take one class per semester or per year. You've got multiple classes going on. And so how students manage that, I think, can be the really challenging. Like, I think at all levels, um, it's great if you can find ways to, if a student can find a way to have subject material or material from one class, help them learn something from another class. Uh, but that may not always be possible. And so I think one of the challenges is just sheer information overload um, from the abundance of information that they've got going on um, in the class and from other other sources too, including classes. But you know, it could be distractions as well, like being on your phone or something like that. Um, I think if the, the the student is not interested in the material um, and they kind of feel like they're forced to be there, right? Like that's a real challenge, I think, especially for young teachers with younger students because. A lot of times, like in my, not, not all, not always, but like, you know, if you do end up going to college, there are going to be some classes where students get to choose to take those classes. There are of course, mandatory classes, mm -hmm. but there's a, quite a few, maybe I would even say the most, most classes are, are selected by the students. So there's some good amount of choice involved, but that's less true as you, you're younger, right? Like mm -hmm. you kind of have to take these classes. And so I think a lot of times what you, you're more likely to encounter those situations where students are taking classes that they may not necessarily be interested in because they didn't have choice based on their, you know, interests and values or whatever. I think in those cases, you know, there's, I always think about it in kind of two ways. A teacher might try to find ways to make the material interesting to students that they don't necessarily find interest in. And I think that can be effective. Right, like so. For example, if, if you've got some, if you've got students taking a um, math class, and initially they're like, "Oh, I don't really find this that interesting," but you know that they're really interested in like sports or video games, they find a way to connect that to their interests. Um, it would be is is great, but I, and there are you can find some really cool examples out there in the world of this, um, but it's hard, right? Because First of all, there's no guarantee that you'll be able to do that for students. But second, um, there's no guarantee that 
um, that if you do that for one student, that it won't turn off another student. And so how to do this at scale, right? Because teachers don't have an infinite amount of time. They can't spend all day, or at least most teachers and students don't have this like just one-on-one uh, experience with a teacher and a student. And so tr how do you find, I think this is the biggest challenge for teachers, how do you find messages and teaching instructions that you can use that is effective for most students that don't, that turns off the least amount of students. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I think that's where, so I've done some research with this with one of my colleagues, David, Dr. David Yeager, along with some other people. Um, I think that's where, if you can find ways for people to think about what they're learning, how it can potentially help others, can be useful for contributing to society in some beneficial way. We've got some evidence that suggests that that can be effective for motivating students to push through, particularly when they're doing stuff that they just find boring and like dreary, like they're just like, ugh, you know, you're not, you're not fine. You're not tricking them or finding a way for them to think this is fun. Like they know it's boring. <laughs> um, but we've got some data, we've got some research studies where we find that if you can get students to at least see the, the bigger purpose behind what they're doing, we, we call it a self-transcendent purpose. So something that goes beyond the self, it, it may benefit you, but it also benefits other people too, this knowledge that you're gaining. <clears throat> we argue that that can be an effective way to reach students that are, um, yeah, that, that, that are um, dealing with subject stuff, stuff that they're not that interested in. So how would, do you think you would teach differently if you didn't have a degree or background in psychology? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I think one thing that I, hold on one second, I'm dealing with kind of a cold. <laughs> Sorry, okay. be right back. Yeah. Okay, also guys, sorry about in the beginning when it like cut off. So I'm really sorry about that. We obviously can't go back, so. But I hope you're enjoying this podcast so far and that you find it really interesting because I do. I definitely do not know a lot about a lot of stuff. Well, that's like for all interviews, but yeah. So I hope you guys are learning something and that you enjoyed today's podcast so far. I know this is the first time we had like a transmission, I guess, in between the middle of the podcast. But if you're still sticking around, I hope you like it. We're back. Um, repeat your question. Um, do you think you would teach differently if you didn't have a degree or background in psychology? Yeah. Um, a great question, actually. Um. Well, yes, I don't, I, I certainly, one thing I can say is just the subject matter that I teach would be, be well, the subject matter might be the same, but the way I do it would be different. And what I mean by that is, so usually when I teach, I don't, do, I, I, I will mention um, examples in the world, anecdotal examples, anecdotes, I should say, examples out there um, to 
to illustrate the phenomenon that I'm talking about. So, for example, in one of my lectures, I talk about the what what is the topic of violent video games and whether that that causes people to be violent. Mm-hmm. And you can find examples out there in the world of people who commit violent acts who play violent video games. And I, and I might mention those people, but I don't just stop there. What's important is to, you know, and this is where my background in psychology comes in, is to talk about research or what do we know based on the scientific method? And that moves beyond just anecdotes. These are research studies done with like several, you know, hundreds of people where you, you randomly assign people to different conditions, like similar to like when you're, you're studying, like you think about people trying to come up with a, a cure, um, <clears throat> a cure for some disease, right? Like if, how would we do that? We wouldn't just like say, well, here, I got this pill. I gave it to this one guy and they, they, they were fine. So we should give it to everybody. Like, wh- why don't we do that? Because everyone has different bodies and different yeah, reactions. Everyone has different bodies, right? And, and, it, and what, could ha- what could happen with that? Um, well, one could either get, like, really sick and backfire, or, like, they take it, and then even though they get the disease, it doesn't help. Right, yeah. If you're just relying on just one person, and it's not even just one. Like, there's, a, you know, there's some point you, you need a critical mass of people that you administer that drug to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but more importantly, too, you wouldn't just have one condition where you just like gave, like even if I had a million people, right, and I gave a million people that one pill, um, what's the problem with that? Um, maybe they're all like the same group, like all males or all females, and it doesn't include all different ethnic- ethnicities? No, but let's assume that's true, too. Maybe I took care of that. Like, I got a very diverse representative sample of people this group this a million people and i give them all this one pill and i see how they do with after they get the disease i don't know what's missing there after they get the disease well in that kind of setup like i'm trying to test whether or not this pill can help treatment for this disease. And so I, I, I have a million people who have the disease and I give them this pill and I look to see what happens. That's my, like, that's my approach to testing this pill. What's, what's missing from that though? If that's the only thing I did. I have no clue. You would never do, you see this by the way, cause that's such poor, uh, I can't even call that science. That's just poor testing. What's missing there is that you need a comparison group. I... You need somebody who at least at least didn't get that pill mm-hmm. um, to know if the pill had any effect. Yeah, because you don't know if it's causation or correlation. Well, it, that wouldn't even be causation because you'd have no way to compare. There's no compa- there, there's nothing to compare to. You'd just be like, oh, I gave this million people this pill. And then what? Like, let's say half of them die. Well, is that the pill? Or is it just the nature of the disease and, like, half of the people die when you wait around? Like, right? You need a comparison group. Mm-hmm. 
And that's why when you see drug trials, you'll see sometimes they say we use the placebo randomized control trial, right? Mm -hmm. That other, that, that placebo group is, is not the real drug. And people don't know which group they're assigned to. And then you're looking to see what happens. You, you got to do the, the same thing happens when I teach, right? So it, when I, when we present lessons in psychology, it's not based on just like one group. Um, these are randomized trials. This is, these are findings based on randomized, uh, uh, experiments where you're getting one people experience one thing and other people experience another thing like playing violent video games versus not or playing some other kind of game and then you see what happens that would be the biggest difference in how i teach because i wouldn't you know you get a lot of people hell you can find this on the internet there are a lot of people who just sit around on youtube and they go hey audience this is what i think and to show you that i'm right here i found this example that backs up what i think well, anybody could do that. Like you can go out and find examples of any, any one example, an example of anything, right? There's enough differences out there in the world or, um, that would be the biggest difference. I, I probably would rely maybe exclusively on just anecdotes. Um, but to be honest, like it would be very difficult to get a teaching job if you did that. Like that's part of what it means to, at least at the college level in my field, um, is that you need to think beyond just, you know what I mean by anecdotes too? Kind of. It's an anecdote is just, here's this example or case um, that maybe you tell me or I find somewhere that you know proves or illustrates a point. It's not to say that that example is, is somehow false or made up, that's not what it is, but we don't know if it like represents like a general phenomenon, right? Like, we don't know if this is how it works for most people most of the time. It may, but if all you have is just that one, right? Like, so if somebody, if I go open my um, refrigerator and I drink chocolate milk while we're on this Zoom call and then I drop dead and you're like, oh my God, did that chocolate milk kill him? Like, <laughs> like you know, and all you have is just that, right? Like, you just saw me drink the chocolate milk and I died. Well, you wouldn't know, right? Like, maybe the chocolate milk, it's all tainted, like, and there's just a bad batch out there. Maybe I had some freak medical condition right when that happened. Maybe I took something before you took that chocolate milk, and that's what caused it. When you just have that single case like that, you have no way to know. You have no way to know. Mm -hmm. And that's why anecdotes can be great to illustrate a point that um, you already know to be true for most people most of the time. It can be a very powerful way to kind of reach people. But I wouldn't use it as like the the evidence to to prove the general point. Okay. So I certainly wouldn't like if I found some video of somebody drinking chocolate milk and then go, "Oh my God, chocolate milk poisons people! <laughs> we need to stop drinking chocolate milk." Look at this video I found of this guy drinking chocolate milk; it kills people. You'd be like, "That's nuts! That could have happened for a million different reasons." What are you doing? So intuitively, you would already, you would know, like, you know, you would, who relies on just one example like that to like have this general argument about chocolate milk killing people. That would be the biggest difference. I think I would not be aware of that. It wouldn't teach that way. Okay. So what's the social, what do you think is a social conflict between teachers and students? Ooh. <sighs> Evaluation grades, 
you know, we are, we, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough balance because grades serve a lot of purposes. You know, one way is to evaluate uh, the learning that's taking place. Um, and so you can think of it as like a benchmark. How well am I as an instructor getting students to learn, but also as a student, how well am I learning this information, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be frustrating in itself because students may feel like they're learning more than they actually what than what an instructor says, and so they may be like, "I get this concept. You don't think I get it, but I get it." That can be a source of conflicts in around grades. But then there's also probably more common is the um, credential aspect that's associated with grading. And what I mean by that is that your grades will determine your access to uh, resources, right? And that Mm -hmm. can even be just as simple as like, do you get access to this um, next school that you want to apply to or this career or this job or whatever? And so if you were even just removing the learning element to it, there is this entryway aspect like grades are like a key right they open doors and so if you think about it like that obviously students want the key (laughs) they want to have access to those resources but as instructors we (coughs) can't give keys to everyone otherwise the keys become meaningless and so we have to guard against what's called grade inflation just giving out meaninglessly high grades uh to people and that can be a source of conflict Hmm. okay so how do you think so um the media affects children's view on things and especially on education Hmm. that's a good one um can you be more specific on what you mean by media uh like either social media or like certain shows they watch or movies or even like um, like news? Yeah. I think, um, hmm. I think generally the news, at least the news that I see, again, I'm not, this is anecdotal because I don't study the impact of news. So I'll admit this is anecdotal. My just experience. I think generally when I look at the news and how they report on education, um, I gen- <laughs> I would say it seems the stories that I would need to come across are focused on either inequities in education access or problems that are occurring in school that are making it difficult for um, teachers and or students to get the things that they need in order to be successful. I feel like the news generally, like if you look at the coverage that they have of like schools um, and education, um, it, it, it seems to be a lot more reporting, less opinionating. Like this is what's going on. And then they leave it for you to figure out like if you agree with it or not. So for example, in Texas, we've had like, we have um, a history of uh, banning certain books in schools. Not just Texas, but Texas is an example of that. 
and um, you know, I don't, I don't. At least the, the stories that I've seen reported on it, I don't think the reporters come down saying that you should or should not ban. They just report on the fact that these books are being banned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they leave it for you to figure out, like, okay, do you agree or disagree? Is this problematic or not? Um, television, social media, those kind of forms of media. I think they can have a positive and a negative impact, but probably mostly negative on learning. Uh, I'll start with the positive, kind of going back to what I said before. I think that something like television or social media can be a source of information for students. And maybe can help change the way they think about whatever it is they're learning. So maybe they might have approached the subject and thought, this is super boring. I don't see what the hell I'm going to get out of this. But then they watch a TV show and they're like, oh my God, that was amazing. Like I watched this, um, I was watching this TV show called Chicago Med. And there was an episode where a doctor is... um, well, this, this parent brings her child in. I think she's a seventh or eighth grade. <clears throat> and she's been uh, testing. She's got metal inside of her body. And it turns out that she had put it in there because she's trying to develop a magnet that can, like, detect uh, cancer or something like that. And at first, the doctor's like, this is nuts, right? Like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to kill yourself. Um but then at the end of the episode, she decides to visit this, this kid's uh, basement. And she's got this whole lab down there with her other kid uh, friends. And they're all, like, doing all this cool stuff. And they need supervision, right? Like, that's what they really need. And so, because um, the parent, this is beyond the parents' education. And, like, um, but this doctor is like, oh, I can help supervise y'all to keep y'all safe. And maybe y'all will eventually develop something like, you know, very useful. So you can imagine watching that TV show and think, man, I never thought about doing that. But that's actually a cool way to approach like biology or science, whatever, right? So it can inspire people to, I would say students to look at something that maybe they thought was boring and be like, oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about using the subject this way. Same thing what I was saying before about purpose, right? Or give you a sense of like, I can do something with this to help people. Um, You may not have been able to initially see that but then a TV show might give that, give that to you, give you that answer. So I think that can have positive impact. The reason I said, though, I think it, all, more, it has more negative impact than positive is the social comparison aspect. I think that happens with television, even though it's fictional. Well, some of it's fictional or quasi-fictional. It's hard to really know. Um, and social media, which, you know, you, it's real. Um, not to say that everybody's necessarily portraying accurate information about themselves there, but it's real. I think that can um, make it difficult for students in edu- in school uh, in a lot of different ways. Uh, first, just even going back to what I said before about grades, right? So when you're not doing as well as you maybe would like or you think you should be, I mean, you're getting this information out there about other people's performance that's better than you that can be really threatening and um, it can undermine your motivation and your confidence 
Um, but then there's other stuff that goes on in those platforms that can be, I'll specifically talk about social media here that can make it feel like edu- the school setting is not one that you feel comfortable that you belong. So things like cyberbullying, right? Like where now you're getting treatment from people on social media that from your, from your people in your school, and then you've got to go to school and interact with those people. Now you don't want to, right? You don't, it doesn't feel like a safe, comfortable place. And so how can learning take place in that environment where you don't even want to be there because you're just like unhappy, maybe even like miserable or terrified depending on what's going on. So I think all putting all, all those together, I say ultimately it's going to have more negative than positive impact in my opinion. All right. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for taking time out of your day for this interview. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, good luck with your podcast. Thank you. Hi, guys. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode and that you learned something new with Dr. Henderson because I just did. And I hope you guys have a wonderful day, evening, night, wherever you are. And, yeah, see you guys next week.